Welcome to the Five Points Podcast. Five Points is named after an area of downtown Atlanta, just steps away from our offices where cattle paths once converged at the site of an artesian well. The name offers us a metaphor for our goal of presenting a convergence of ideas and genres, artwork and text, north and south, east and west, young and old. I'm Megan Sexton, the editor of Five Points, a journal of literature and art. Join me as we explore the world beyond the page and hear from contributors from two selections from our Volume 20, Number 1 issue. While vaccinations began to roll out this past May, when hope seemed to be looming on the horizon, I talked with Jill Bialaski, acclaimed author, poet, and executive editor at W.W. Norton, about her newest work of poetry, Asylum, which was published at the height of the pandemic in 2020. I'm going to read five sections from Asylum, which is a long poem that's divided into 103 lyric sections. So I don't have titles for each section. I use numbers. So I'm going to read a selection. The first one is number one. There she is, the woman who once inhabited these rooms, drank tea from this cup, her shape in the cushion. Isn't that hers? Those shelves filled with books from the bookshops of her youth. Rilke, Plath, Akhmadova, Stevens, Strand. Afternoons spent in worn leather chairs beneath the dim yellow lamplight by the window. Slow motion of curling leaves heralding a fallen season. 27. I knew by then that anything was possible. Once we witnessed a child's cheek nearly cut out from another skater's blade during a fall as he swerved in and out of the skaters, the triple axle of envy, gluttony, and pride igniting their hearts, always someone who wanted to outdo another. We had to witness all of it because it had already happened. I had to be vigilant, cautious. Sometimes I held his hand tight because I knew. 23. Washing dishes, occasionally looking out at the wood and at one bird circling the nest and at the pollen dust raining from the greenery that has gathered, not simply as a nuisance in our pool, but as a miracle of procreation. And it was as if seeing pollen for the first time. 56. In yoga class, the teacher says ukatasana, or awkward pose, chair pose, comes from the ancient stance of two warriors in opposition. In this pose, we place our standing feet together, our chest out, and our arms outstretched by our ears, and squat without losing alignment in our back. Ukatasana comes from the Sanskrit Utica, which means fierce, proud, high, haughty, superior, immense, large, difficult. It's a warrior pose. You must breathe through your struggle, she says. Set your intention. Breathe. 59. 
A pigeon flew overhead and kept circling our table at an outdoor cafe. A year had passed. Soon we would lay the headstone. What did it want, desperate as we still were to assign meaning, fluttering its filthy wings, circling and fluttering, fluttering and circling, a scavenger in a city of scavengers. She thought she could fool infinity. It was pitiful, no food or crumbs, nothing the pigeon could have wanted, only our blood-red wine and napkins folded in our lap. We were among the living. There was no entrance back. Asylum offers itself as perhaps the perfect poem for quarantine. In the sections you just read, the speaker seems trapped within a house, but finds comfort, beauty, and meaning by looking at the outside world. It is so prescient. I know you, at the time of writing the poem, you couldn't have known what would be happening with the pandemic um, upon the publication of the book. But I wonder if you've, if you thought about um, how asylum during the time of the p- pandemic has helped people through this moment in history. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Megan. To me, it was really surreal to have asylum come out during the pandemic when, of course, I had worked on the the long poem, probably began it maybe four or five years prior. But as the poem kept unfolding itself, I found myself preoccupied with my personal inner world, but also with the world outside. And I think that I'm hoping that that asylum sort of captures that duality One aspect I was concerned with during the time in which the poem was coming into being was the idea of how we seek sanctuary, how we seek asylum, when we are in the midst of deep societal and global unrest, when people are being randomly shot for the color of their skin or their nationality. How do we seek asylum when we are grieving How do we cultivate hope in the midst of despair? So I'm hoping that the book is a book that's that's searching um, for for some kind of meaning in the midst of, of this sort of chaos of living. And so in the poem itself, I was hoping that there are moments of hope of respite and beauty that the poem also searches for as it circles around certain themes. It it does seem to me to have come out during a perfect moment because it was, I think, during the pandemic, so many of us were isolated and alone and particularly in the early months, not quite knowing what where we what the future would hold for us and what life would be like and so i love the idea of thinking about readers reading asylum during that time in which all of us were seeking some form of solace or asylum during the pandemic i feel like there's a lot of really you know, like kind of swimming to the top of your consciousness, sort of, and then waking up to the world around you that I feel like in and out of these poems, I love that they're all connected and yet 
single units as well. And I love that idea of what a sequence can do as like you feel like you're your experience, the evolution of a poet's thought. Mm, yes, thank you so much. I love that. Um, I love how you express that. But it it does it. it, it um, yeah, I, I think with this book, I wanted to take some more risks and just see what would happen um, once it started coalescing for me, and just like a wider span of ideas. Because when, you know, working on an individual poem, you're so focused on the subject matter that comes to the page and, you know, and it's very concentrated. And I felt like with Asylum, I was able to kind of broaden what could go into a poem. So that for me, it was a real breakthrough, this book. I felt a lot freer in some ways to just cast aside as much doubt as possible <laughs> and and just you know continue to explore within the parameters that I set up it was an interesting process I have no idea you know what will come next but um, but I did like that breadth of the sequence when you started did you have in mind this form that seems to be consistent through the sequence of uh, more of a paragraph, you know, as a vessel for the for the work? Or did that sort of emerge as you began to conceive of it? Yeah, it did sort of emerge. I mean, I feel like I became conscious that I wanted like the forms to somehow change as well because of the pacing, because I, I did want the reader to be able to read the book as one long poem. And so in order to to make sure that that I wasn't creating kind of monotony of voice and tone, I think that the form on the page really helped me to have or for the reader to have places of that kind of a reprieve. And then there are other poems that I think become more heightened and and maybe, you know, more um, lyrical. And then, you know, especially the yoga <laughs> teacher sections, I, I felt warranted a more prose-like construction. So I was also, as a poet, I always think very much about the music of a poem or the, you know, the, the way in which, you know, the breathing of a poem and, and sometimes you need to give more space if, if something on the page is very dark, then I wanted to introduce something more playful in the language. So I, I was conscious of, of kind of monitoring the different tones in asylum and hoping that it would kind of have a symphonic my dream is to <laughs> is to you know engage with a um composer i would love to to set it to music so i'm at some point going to explore that possibility i think that would be wonderful because that to me was just my experience reading it, it was very much, it felt orchestrated and it had the sort of, you know, ebb and flow of a, of a, you know, a composition. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking of Bach and, um, 
different movements. So I think it would really just translate so well to a musical adaptation. That would be fantastic. Oh, thank you, Megan. If you ever know of anyone, any composer, send them my way. You know, I did begin to think of it that way myself as a kind of symphony of sorts of tones and voices. Yeah, yeah. Would you consider having the poetry sung at, along with accompanying instrumental adaptation of, of the work? Yes, yes, I would love that. In fact, I'm thinking of, for myself, I want to videotape or, or tape myself reading the whole thing at once, and then I want to listen to it and see how it sounds. I've never done that. So that's a goal for me this summer, (laughs) Um, (laughs) because that will take some time. But, you know, there's this wonderful poet that I publish at Norton, Alice Oswald. And I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but her book Memorial is about the foot soldiers of the Iliad. And it's kind of a book length work. And she memorized the entire book. And she performs it. And I was lucky enough to be able to come to one of her performances. And it really is just magical. Oh, my goodness. um, I would love to try to do that. I'm not a great memorizer, but I might give it a shot. (laughs) It sounds phenomenal. And um, I think that it sounds like such a fitting project for you to to work on this further and, and, and have its, you know, life as an oral production would be amazing. I'm really in awe of how you've you've captured the latent power of everyday things in the work and that I feel like we are all, you know, people are looking at birds more now, you know, and, um, you know, people are gardening and watching seeds grow and, and that's all happening now in a way it wasn't before. And apparently poetry is, is more popular now than ever. Um, and another uh, positive thing that's happened during the pandemic. But could we talk about, I was interested in asking you about your yoga practice and how your, you know, does that enable your ability to find the power in the latent latent power in ordinary objects, if if that makes any kind of sense. I began my yoga practice maybe about like six or seven years ago, and I was so grateful for it. Um, I realized that I was carrying around so much stress and tension and that my mind was always circling that, you know, I have a busy mind. And so I found that once I started practicing yoga, that it became this place of, you know, being able to turn off the the mind and, and listen, and listen to the yoga instructor telling me what to do, which I love, because usually I feel like I'm telling people what to do. And so it was, um, so that's one aspect of yoga that I really connect with. But also the ways in which you begin to abandon your thinking process and the body and the breath take over. And I began to really think about how yoga is so similar to the practice of writing in the sense that, you know, in a yoga pose, if the instructor tells you to adjust your stance or to breathe into your arm or lift your leg higher 
that this small little adjustment changes the pose. And the same with poetry is that, you know, if you take out a word or you adjust a, a fragment, it can also change the very nature of the poem so that it's really an act of, it's all a process that, you know, the yoga practice is the process that you continually build on, even though the poses are all the same, you know, um, require the same composition in the body. And so I love that connection between poetry and yoga and the idea of having a practice that writing is a practice and yoga is a practice. And so when I was writing this poem, and some of it is dark and concerns questions of survival and extinction and the suicide of a sister and even historical losses having to do with World War II. I felt that there were places in the poem the yoga instructor intrudes in order to ground the speaker, to ground herself back into her own being. So that asylum, in a way, is a, is the relationship between one's being and then the outside world of the natural world, the historical world, and societal concerns. So I see it as a kind of braiding. I just love that because that's exactly how I feel that you've achieved that in the work is that you've braided the practice of poetry and yoga. Thank you. In the volume 20, number one issue of Five Points, I had the pleasure of introducing our readers to never-before-published poems by George Addison Scarborough, a gay intellectual poet who lived as an outcast in East Tennessee from 1915 to 2008. I invited Professor Donna Coffey-Little, who wrote an essay to accompany Scarborough's poems in our issue to discuss his themes of exile, sexuality, and metaphysics. Donna is the director of the Etowah Valley Writers Low Residency MFA program at Reinhardt University in Waleska, Georgia. In this segment, Donna speaks about the paradox at the heart of Scarborough's poetry and how he was deeply tied to his home landscape and the Appalachian Mountains of Tennessee, while at the same time he was perpetually an outsider in his homeland because he was gay and because he was a brilliantly odd poet born into a sharecropping family. This paradox is nowhere more evident than in his poem, A Dream of Summer Crossroads, which begins her piece. I woke down country in a quandary of ways. Where shall I go and how do I get there when the country is marked but not both ways and the third is a gamble, whether up or down? Is there no rough arrow fixed for crows, some point at the center where all ways are none? In desolation of flyaway weathers and beast-cropped knolls, how must I feel? In hills and brambles and meadows where thin cattle mock with moo, in glaring sun, the red clay road goes dancing, dancing to shimmering water. In a landscape, none laments with an O. What shall I say to rough birds flying? And how shall I tell under those crooked perches of wood, feathered by wind, where beaks are pointing? What the rough tongues say, what rasping revel? Where shall I go and how arrive there, raging with cinder, 
caught in the badlands of creaking dreams, ice at the core in the midst of the burning. I shall not go when the wind waits the windmill's height, its wanton turnings. I shall not dream in lurched directions, but sit in the shade of slouching fingers, drink from pebbles red-hot on the tongue, shunning sharp waters from casks of iron, lest my heart turn savage and sharply metallic. The heart is coldly alive in the shimmers. It does not deck itself in remarkable clothing, is plain in the winds, displaced in the shoutings. I shall sit still and colder than still, somewhat at the center, while ways run on, red clay to water, and the heart prepares in the breach of all promises, the best of its songs. Scarborough spent much of his life wandering in the mountains and valleys of Polk County and McMinn County, Tennessee, exploring the landscape of Chilhowee Mountain and Star Mountain, the Ocoee River, and the Hiawassee River. It was where he belonged, and yet where he could never belong. His own father and brothers were never able to accept his sexuality or the fact that he'd rather daydream or read a book than plow a field. Images of orientation and disorientation, crossroads and misdirection, appear in many of his poems as metaphors for his struggles with identity. Today, we would call it intersectionality. He asks in the poem, Dream of Summer Crossroads, where shall I go and how do I get there when the country is marked but not both ways, and the third is a gamble, whether up or down. In my essay on Scarborough in Five Points, I write about how he intuited many of the lessons of modern physics. A lifetime of walking in the mountains imprinted his mind with a topography as undulating, rumpled, and curved as quantum space-time. One of the most metaphysical of 20th century American poets, Scarborough's meditations on landscape reveal an awareness of the relativity of both space and time. In his poem, The Visit, he writes, Just what I'm north of is the test of what I'm south of, or the other way around. Later in his life, Scarborough wrote from the persona of Han Shan, the 8th century Chinese poet who wrote the Taoist Cold Mountain poems. Like Scarborough, Han Shan was an exile living on a mountain, seeking enlightenment in the flow of rivers and drift of clouds. Scarborough's quest for identity and feeling of exile was also informed by his Cherokee heritage. While we often assume that all of the Cherokee who lived in the Smoky Mountains were either removed on the Trail of Tears in 1838 or became part of the Eastern Band of Cherokee in North Carolina, Scarborough's family history proves that pockets of Cherokee who had intermarried with whites remained in rural Tennessee. Scarborough often writes about his father Oscar's Cherokee ancestry. 
Indeed, in family photos, Oscar and his parents and grandparents certainly appear to be Native American. In his poem, High School History Lesson, Nancy Ward's Grave, Polk County, 1930, Scarborough meditates upon the Trail of Tears as he describes visiting the grave of the beloved Cherokee woman warrior Nancy Ward, buried not far from his family home. High School History Class, Nancy Ward's Grave, Polk County, 1930. These coned knolls squared a tent city at nightfall. Our eyes expect to see fires smoking from the pyramids. Our eyes compose diversions of flame and plume. Our county is nondescript. We are a dishrag corner, darkening interface of quartz and clay. Between the sights of the sun, our eyes seek figures herded between the sights of a gun. They've taken the overland route, leaving us mapless and stranded, only here in passing. These exiles, a passing reference, a footnote for the enmity of scholars, those chewers of fat from the fact of history. At best, an amulet in the black mold under the beaches, a stone bead, a point chipped true, a gnome's mud face. What are these but asterisks, a bookman's daggers? Ours is a dry place between two rivers, skirted by shell roads from an unseen sea, traced by trailings of camps, struck and set between the sights of the sun. The county is empty of fame, noteless. We climb the rivering knoll, left behind, and seeking fire where all that's left is stone. For Scarborough, his home landscape was inscribed with the trauma of the Trail of Tears. He imagines the tent cities of Cherokee ancestors herded between the sights of a gun, taking the overland route to Oklahoma. The Cherokee exiles have left him mapless and stranded. He finds amulets, beads, and arrowheads, remnants of his displaced people. The poem invokes his sense that, as Faulkner famously said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Trauma persists and is tied to a place. Quantum physics has taught us that the passage of time is an illusion and that the concepts of past and present are always relative to where in the cosmos you are standing. From where he was standing on Chilhowee Mountain, Scarborough intuited that, quote, all journeys end at the beginning, and all travelers arrive home at the moment of leaving, end quote. Scarborough explained in an interview with Iris Press publisher Bob Cumming that, quote, wherever a human has been and lived and sweated and fought for his bread, that something of that person is still there. Scarborough's sense 
of the presence of the past was tied not only to his identification with his Cherokee ancestors, but also with his bittersweet longing for the lovers of his youth. Scarborough did not publicly acknowledge his homosexuality until very late in life, when he wrote about it in the Han Shan poems, many of which were published in the journal Poetry and collected in his book with Iris Press, Under the Lemon Tree. Some of his poems on the subject still remain unpublished. The poem Cameo, published for the first time in Five Points, is a poignant expression of young love. Cameo. Age times memory equals the scent of new herds grass in the ads-beamed, high-lofted barn. Between loads of first yield, nail holes glitter high overhead in the ancient tin roof. Corner-wise, the dove throats clotted syllables with the sound of milk in them like the voice of a young man. Loft-wise, the landlord's son moves toward me, naked, on burnished feet, eternally smiling, forever advancing, motionless as stone, but tender as peaches, inviting as melons, pristine, initial, dead these sixty years. One might say that Scarborough's cameo is the equivalent of Keats's Grecian urn. In his memory, at least, the landlord's son is moving towards him, eternally smiling, forever advancing, pristine, initial, though dead these 60 years. I think the time has come to remember and celebrate what Scarborough accomplished. He was very well published in his lifetime, with dozens of his poems appearing in poetry and other prestigious journals, and with seven published books. Yet he was always an outsider because of his social class, his sexuality, and his differently wired brain. He was never a part of the elite literary establishment. When the Etowah Valley Low Residency MFA program at Reinhardt University acquired his papers and became his literary executor at the behest of his former literary executor and friend, Becky Mobbs, we all saw it as an opportunity to restore Scarborough's reputation. But the deeper I got into Scarborough's work, the more personal the quest became. It's not just the exquisite artistry of Scarborough's words for me. It's the way he interacts with the landscape, not in a neo-romantic sentimental way, but more like his avatar Han Shan and an almost Taoist meditation on the nature of time and space. In his poem, Oh Now, he writes, who will adventure blue woods? Oh, who will go into the mirror now? Who can endure the truth that lives in there, can find things backward to his forward eye and upside down to his inverted face? Wandering his lonely way, 
rejected by friends and neighbors and family. Scarborough never stopped seeking the truth in blue woods. It is a gift to enter his poems and join his brave and beautiful adventure. To learn more about Jill Bialowski and her book Asylum, as well as George Scarborough and Donna Coffey Little, please visit our show notes. To order the Volume 20, Number 1 issue of Five Points, visit us at fivepoints.gsu.edu. Thank you for joining us in this latest episode of the Five Points Podcast. We look forward to sharing future episodes with you, so please subscribe and rate the show on your podcast app.